Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. A.L. Levy here. I just want to apologize about the weird mic quality for me. I'm quarantining right now, uh, so I'm using the laptop mic, and uh, it sounds a little bit different, but uh, you guys will survive. Anyways, our guest today is Jake Bowen, who is a guitar player and songwriter in the Grammy-nominated metal giant's Periphery. You know exactly who he is. Let's get into it. I introduce you, Jake Bowen. All right, Jake Bowen, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hey, how you doing? Good. Very good. How are you? I'm good. I mean, I've been trapped inside the house for a few months. Well, most of the year, but uh, trying to make the best of it. So let me let me ask you a question about Cheesecake Factory. How do you think it's possible that they have so many items on the menu? Because <laughs> it's ridiculous. If I'm going to give like a serious answer, I think yeah. they have so many like deals with distribution networks for food that it's like not hard for them to do that. But whenever I open that menu, I mean, I don't go there a lot, especially because I don't live across the street anymore from it. Like, oh, that's dangerous. Yeah, it was like it was it was in a mall right across the street from my house. It was too convenient. But, you know, whenever I open that menu, I'm just like, man. I don't want to look at all this. Like, give me three choices because it's totally option paralysis. And I don't, you know, it's it's kind of cool, but it's too much. And then they put like the the calorie counts next to everything. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, my God, dude. Like, <laughs> I think it's possible to go there, have a full meal and take down like 5000 calories. <laughs> Absolutely. Easily. And then, you know, if you're drinking like you have that, too, you know, because who doesn't want to? A tall, cold glass of beer with their chicken piccata and then rounding it off with some uh, peanut butter cup, double chocolate cheesecake. <laughs> Man, I read that Thanksgiving dinner is on average 4,500 calories. Oh, my God. Yeah, but that's not counting leftovers. So basically, people are eating about 4,500 to 5,000 calories a day for like four or five days straight. It's insane. So, you know, a pound is 3,500 and you burn like, say, 2,000 in a day. So you can see how like eating one Thanksgiving meal is not a big deal. But like if you eat them for five days straight, like everybody does, that's when it becomes a big deal. Yeah. And it's it's kind of funny you bring that up because obviously with the the way things are this year, it was just me and my mom for Thanksgiving. We canceled like the family gathering. And so, you know, we had our dinner and yeah, I was full. And then the next day I went over to her house and I grabbed leftovers and then I had those. And then I'm just like, all right, this is the last day I can do this. And then my mom, like, is, she's obviously feeling the same way about it. She keeps like calling me. She's like, can you come up and can you come over and pick up these leftovers? She's like trying to pawn off all of this extra food that she know that she knows is going to like she's going to eat onto me and i'm just like no that's that's you're going to have to like donate it or something cuz i am not do i can't do 3 days in a row that stuff it's crazy does it make you feel like shit or do you gain weight or what is it it's guilt you don't want the torture yeah cuz it's just like i don't have like body issues or like a eating disorder or anything like that but i just feel like kind of weird about it like after a while and i've spent like, especially with like touring and like what that does to you physically, it's kind of like I've come home and I'm just like, all right, I really got to start taking this serious. I'm like 37 years old and it's just like, it just gets harder and harder to, to eat right. So I'm constantly thinking about that. And that's really what kind of puts me off of, uh, you know, Thanksgiving leftovers. And, you know, I, I've just, I'm one of those people that just like every time I take something out of the cabinet, I think about the guilt behind it rather than just, I've just taken all the joy out of food and it's, it's a pretty sad place to be. I hope that it's just a phase. <laughs> well, which aspect of touring? Is it just everything put together? Like the travel plus the shitty food plus alcohol plus? It's the bread and cheese, a hundred percent. It's that, it's that goddamn after show pizza that everybody wants and and no one asked for but everybody wants it because the tour manager's smart and he's like you know what these guys are gonna be hungry after the show i better make sure that there's some pizza and like every day after i've spent like you know an hour and 20 minutes drinking wine on stage i don't even like take a shower before i already have that first slice of pizza in my mouth <laughs> so it's really like that shit because then like you know i don't stay up that late after the show's over i just go you know, I go to bed. So I go to bed with like two or three slices of pizza in here and like the wine. And then I just wake up just feeling like a cadaver. So 
do that for 45 days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, that's. Re- I really think that's what it is. Because in the morning, I'll wake up and I'm part of what in periphery we call the breakfast crew. And it's like, it's me and and Matt Halpern and uh, some of the crew guys. It, our crew changes up a little bit, so I don't want to miss any names. But um, but it's usually just the early risers, and we, you know, we have like a, a separate group chat from the, the like aside from the tour chat where we just kind of, you know, send our favorite brunch spots, and then we go and we have like legitimate meals, and and a lot of us eat healthy, and and it's everything. But it's like at the end of the night after we've been drinking and and we then we eat the pizza. That's really what's I feel like taking years off of all of our lives. Do you get any of the sleep deprivation or any of that side of it? Not usually. I, I'm actually kind of like the envy of some some of the guys in my band in terms of like where I can fall asleep. Like I'll just like. I'll catch like cat naps in like backstage, maybe like an hour before we go on stage and everyone's like, you know, listening to loud music or talking loudly or we have guests back there and I'm just like passed out and they're like, what's his problem? And he's like, oh, he's just taking a nap. How? I don't know. I just I'm good at sleeping. I think it's because I started touring when I was pretty young and I got like I got really used to it. Um, But I'm just a sleepy guy. I'm like, I'm the sleepiest guy. I'm, you know, except for when you're in airports, right? Oh yeah, I I, I I I definitely listened to that segment. Yeah, on, so let's uh, talk about that. <laughs> getting right into the hard news. I like it. <laughs> well, well, they told they told me didn't he say not to bring it up or something? Oh no, we can totally talk about it. You know, it's the everlasting saga of Jake Bowen and his problem with authority figures. <laughs> So that's that's what it is. No, no. I mean, sort of. You know, it's not because like I don't I don't get like that because like I have this like insecure like small man syndrome. I'm like I'm a little I'm on the short side. Like it's not that. It's what it is is like growing up. I always kind of sensed that like people in positions of power they like to take advantage of people who don't push back, and I always felt like it was like that in an airport because it's like. When you pay, not only are you paying like this stupid amount of money to fly, I think like plane tickets are really expensive. Like I think what you're getting for the value is just, it's such a terrible exchange, but we're okay with it because it's such a convenience. But I think the thing that really grinds my gears about going to the airport is that there's no standard. There's no, there's no consistency. You can't count on everything being the same exact way upon your return. So you know, we'll get there and we'll have all our gear. We fly with all our gear. It's, it's, it's kind of like, it's a cool thing, but it's also an enormous pain in the ass. So, and for people who don't know, you have to budget for that. They don't just let you take on all that extra shit. And it can be wildly expensive. Yes. Thousands. Yeah. I mean, you guys, you guys are well aware of this and, you know, a lot of people might not know that, but it's like, what bands have started doing is kind of, you know, when we get offers from other countries to come play, we're like, okay, like, you know, this looks good, but we need to have a budget for baggage fees because, you know, coming over there, it's going to, you know, it's going to cut off a lot of like what we stand to make from this. And there have been times in the past where like we were either in the red or we just barely broke even. And it's just like, you know, as much as we love playing music, this isn't a charity. Like we need to go there, work and and make the money that we, you know, that we set out to make to, to do this job. And so, you know, going to the airport, we'd find that sometimes it was like, it was either a breeze and they were like super helpful and they didn't charge us for overweight items, which is a separate charge from, from just like regular baggage fees, additional baggage fees. I noticed that like, I would hang back a lot in the, in, in the very early days and kind of let some of the other guys handle it. And then I noticed that like, because some, some of the other guys didn't have like the, they're just too nice, you know? And, and if, they see there's going to be no pushback. They're just going to charge you. You know, they don't care. They're not thinking about our budget or anything. Why would they? They're their own business. And so I realized I'm like, ah, oh, man, I'm going to have to, you know, I, we can't, we can't, we can't lose money like working. 
you know otherwise there's no point in being here like i don't want to i don't want to go through immigration and customs to lose money so i just kind of like you know i would go up to the counter with them it's like you paying to for the opportunity to go through customs exactly <laughs> and 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 you know and you know these jackasses who are handling your uh, your baggage are chucking them around and like you know everybody has a uh, you know the airport broke my guitar story or like they lost our shit and it's just like, you know, I already know that that's the level of service I'm going to get. So I just started kind of going up to the counter with the with the tour manager and, and whoever else was helping. And, you know, once I start to sense that, like, they're trying to, like, to give us uh, trouble, then I kind of step in and I get real rigid and I'm not a very nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> The part that got, that gets me, because uh, I'm actually pretty chill when it comes to lots of things like these, but the part that gets me is that the rules change on the same airline depending on where you're going. So you one way could be zero charges for anything, like if you consolidate perfectly, or very few, but then on the way back, like say you go to Europe, on the way back, the rules are completely different, and you get charged like eight times as much. And uh, they don't really care if you push back in some parts of Europe. Like, uh, yeah, they're they, used to they, it. They, yeah, they got that prison guard mentality. <laughs> yeah, they <laughs> like, stonewall you, and then that's yeah, it. You're, you're finished. Yeah, not possible. Do you consider yourself the kind of person that is uh, pretty easygoing, go with the flow up until you feel like uh, some injustice is being committed on you or your friends and no one's doing anything about it. Yeah, that's 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 a good way to describe it. Like I try to be as easygoing as possible. I try to give a benefit of, of a doubt to everyone because like I kind of a little later in life I I decided that like I don't think that there are truly evil people. Like I think that there can be. I don't think like that's like a completely, you know, there there are sociopaths and psychopaths and all that stuff like that. But I don't think like most people are going through life like trying to hurt other people. I think if they do, it's because something is in their life is causing it. So I try to give like a, a benefit of a doubt to, to any like person that I encounter or anything or like, any friction that I encounter. Like I don't hold any ill will to like, you know, any previous adversaries that I've had in my life or whatever. You know, I, I, I try to be like. How? Show me the way. <laughs> well, the way is like kind of. I've spent a lot of time alone. I'm a very like isolated person. I try not to be, but it's just kind of like, it's always been my nature. I, I grew up as an only child and I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. And the friends that I did have were kind of like fair weather friends. And it, I kind of like learned to fend for myself. But then after a while, I'm like, wow, dude, you're a lonely asshole. Like you, you have to, <laughs> you, you have to be nice to people and you have to like force yourself to socialize, even though it's uncomfortable. And you have to like really try to understand the world. And I think like kind of just being alone and being a loner and and kind of uh, just realizing that like, I guess like to put it simply is that like, I was kind of becoming the asshole I never believed that I was. And now my motto is like, be the person you think you are. Because if you ask anybody, it's like, yo, you think you're a good person? Are you a good person? They'll be like, yeah, of course I'm a good person. And it's like, really? You know, and that's kind of I, I want people to always be asking that question or at least telling themselves, you know, be the person you think you are. So if you think you're a good person and if you think like, you know, you're understanding about the world, then um, then prove it. And that's kind of what that's kind of like my my mantra. And uh, I'm not always successful. I fail a lot. I get angry a lot. You know, it's just it, it's it's always a work in progress because like getting mad is just so much easier. It's and and it feels good in that like that split second. Was well, so natural to us. Yeah, I think of it as like primates, like in in prehistoric times, like with like femurs in their hand, like wailing each other over the head and stuff like that. Like we're not too far away from that. We like to give ourselves credit that we are, but we're still animalistic in a lot of ways. And I think like the way that modern society is very very young in our history. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Modern civilization is only. A few thousand years old and uh we have like is it something like two hundred thousand years of modern humans with these brains same brains as ours yeah it's a it's a spark cosmically yeah so we're basically we're wired to be like that to get mad take the club 
and fucking split someone's brains, which <laughs> doesn't apply in our modern world. In our modern, modern world, which is like about 100 years old, like we haven't caught up to that. Like our, our brains are not evolved to these laws or rules or technology or anything that we have going around us. So these primal instincts that have actually served us very, very well for over 100,000 years just don't apply anymore. And so, well, thankfully we're human and we can have self-awareness, but we have to make a strong, strong effort to exercise it and be able to overcome our true nature, which is to get mad and uh, and kill. Absolutely. Basically. And I think we're seeing like this weird, like kind of like uh, hybrid version of that with like social media and being online i think like you know you because like if you go online and you go on any comment section there's probably like most of the people are saying like like really like uh antagonistic stuff and 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 reactionary antagonistic stuff exactly it's reactionary exactly that and i think because as you said like we don't where our minds aren't quick to catch up with technology the the technology is like outpacing us and you know i think we're experiencing some some pretty severe growing pains with that but damn we got real deep it happens we know that you guys have one of the most amazing work ethics out of anybody in the game how's it been for you work-wise to stay home not be able to do the physical part of it i mean i know that you guys are the types of people who always and I say you guys because, you know, like we said, I've had I've talked to everybody in your band multiple times except for your singer. But like so I know I know how you guys operate. But since this is our first time talking, um, I'm just curious work wise how it's been from your perspective. It's been kind of like the same in some ways and kind of and then after a while, I'm like, wow, like. I really need to start creating more things to do. So when I'd get home from a tour, I'd kind of just go into this like super isolationist phase where I'd just like, you know, get into a good video game or book or TV series or something like that. And I just like kind of, you know, grind away a couple of weeks, just chilling, decompressing. But after a while of this, uh, this whole pandemic thing, I'm just like, man, like I need more stuff to do. So I've had to kind of, curate the rest of my year to like have things to do like i started working on a new like solo album but as far as like the band goes everything on my end has stayed almost the same besides the you know the rehearsals and touring so um we do this amazing thing and i i highly re recommend anybody who is like you know trying to organize better is to have like a weekly band call and we have a weekly band call with our manager and we kind of, you know, he's the MC. So he kind of just goes down his list of topics and, you know, we got periphery and we got three dot and we got merch and we got, now we have like a uh, bottom ramen, which is our, our little t-shirt project that we're doing. And it's just kind of like, it, it gives us a chance to stay connected on a consistent basis and to kind of make sure that everybody's on the same page. So, you know, some weeks don't go by and be and people and some people who haven't spoken to others because we got all we all we're all best friends, but we all got our own things going on. So we don't talk that much outside of the outside of these band meetings, especially like business stuff. So this is a way for us to like really stay organized and run the business and you don't really have to go anywhere for that. You know, I, I usually just do it in my pajamas and, you know, I, I throw on my my iPhone headset and I'm usually, you know, just sitting there kind of like working on the business with the guys. And, and that's really like the bulk of like the, the band work. So besides doing all that stuff, which is... Uh, it's organized by us, but also organized by our management. I've really had to like kind of like come up with other things to do. So like I've been um, I've been writing stuff for a new periphery album. Uh, I've been working on a solo album and I've like been trying to rebuild my studio and and kind of enter my phase of like, all right, dude, like you've kind of been slacking long enough time to, you know, time to join your peers and and get some and upgrade your equipment and get better lighting and 
make sure that you have uh, the stuff you're put you're outputting is staying competitive. So I've been kind of working on that um, over the past few months, and uh, it's been going well. But yeah, really, the thing that's really just that, that's gone to a halt is uh, is the touring. So on my end, not much has changed, and I've had to like make changes in order to like not go crazy and feel like I'm just like sitting on my butt all day. Do you consider yourself more of a musician or entrepreneur, like say Misha and Matt? Do you consider, like if you were to like describe yourself, because I, I feel like in some ways they're almost, I know they love music, but it's almost like they seem more passionate about being entrepreneurs and the music is just like a vehicle for that. Whereas I think from talking to Mark, he's a musician first. Because I mean, Periphery is a super entrepreneurial band. So I feel like you can't not think that way to a degree and be involved in that project. But like, if there's a spectrum, you know, between pure artist, musician, all the way to entrepreneur, where do you, where do you see yourself? I'd say like me and Mark are probably more similar in that sense. I, you know, this is the weirdest thing about like being a musician, a professional musician is that like, I, you guys, you guys know what imposter syndrome is? Have you heard Fuck yeah. You know, dude, it's not just musicians though. Um, Now that I've been in the business world for as long as I have, and I've met a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs outside of music. And uh, I think anyone who does well who's not a psychopath experiences it yeah it's kind of like i'm like some days maybe when i've smoked weed i don't know i i don't confirm nor deny i do that i'll be sitting there and i'll be like i'm a musician for a living and i don't know what i'm doing and then i just like sit there with that thought and it's kind of like oh my god like what do I do? I don't know what I'm doing. You know, and the thing is, is like, I'm able, I'm able to kind of compartmentalize these like anxieties. And when I go into the studio with the guys, I'm more focused on just like making jokes and having fun with them. And then the music comes out naturally. And I don't think about the fact that I don't really actually know what I'm doing. I just like sit there and, and play around enough and try to emulate, like the guys in my band are my heroes. Like, I try to, you know, I try to emulate their behavior musically as best that I can while infusing my my own take on stuff. So I think with that desire and like that amount of drive to do that, I'm able to kind of hang with these guys. So even though like I am a musician by trade, I always kind of feel like, man, like I still don't know what I'm doing. Like if like somebody was like, all right, here's here's five hundred dollars write a song for me i i'd be like i can't keep your money like i wouldn't be able to do it like under that kind of pressure you know what i mean which is where you know if you talk to anybody else who is actually a musician they could be like yeah no problem i can do that so so i have that kind of like going on in my head but then i do i do kind of dabble in the whole like entrepreneurial thing like i'm working on something with um ggd i can't say what it is because i don't know if they want me to but you know that's kind of like when i realized that i could do something like this i was like okay so this this maybe is like how i get my my feet wet with this kind of stuff kind of branching out and then like the other things that i have going on are like i designed a signature series with ibanez and i have a i have a, I have a couple new guitars coming out this is kind of like the standard like you know musician stuff when you know your band gets to a certain level you can talk to companies about making products that bear your name and that's kind of like the as far as i've really ever gotten with doing stuff as a supplemental side, I don't have like the, any sort of like desire to kind of like change where I'm at in life yet. And I'm, you know, perfectly happy doing what I'm doing. I think that's great. I think uh, the reason I was asking is because I got the impression that wherever you saw yourself on that spectrum, you were cool with it. Well, the reason I'm saying this is because I've heard a lot of people listen to some of these episodes and feel like because, you know, like, We'll talk to Matt and talk about ice baths and like all kinds of crazy shit because he, he and I both do like extreme fitness stuff to get. And so we talk about it a lot. So we'll talk about that for like two hours and then I'll get like a bunch of messages where people will feel like shit that they don't do that. <laughs> and it's like you shouldn't feel like shit. Like self-awareness is the most important thing. Uh, you're either you're wired the way you're wired. And as long as you're going the way that you are wired and you make the most of that, 
you're going to be fine, in my opinion. Yeah, so yeah. It's got to be, to be some, trying, Yeah, trying to be something you're not doesn't ever lead to good things. The, this world needs all types of people. Yeah, and, and also there's also like a um, kind of like a space, like this invisible space that we all respect. You know, like I'm not going to go out and start a competing pedal company. You know, because then, you know, that's going to step on the toes of somebody I care about very much, you know, and like, I'm sure he'd be a hundred, like, I'm, I'm speaking about Misha and Horizon devices and stuff like that. Not that I have any sort of like inclination to do that. It's just that it's just not something that I really think about. It's because like Misha already did that. Like, I don't need to do that too, you know? So like, eventually I feel like I'll stumble upon like the new thing that I want to work on, but it, it never, it never is in the pursuit of like, I need more money or I want to be more successful or I want to, you know, push myself harder. And, you know, it's, it's funny that we're talking about this because like, I kind of get shit from people about it. Like people in my life, they're like, you need to push yourself. Like, you know, Mark or Misha does, I don't see you posting stuff. And I'm just like, cause I don't want to, like, it's just not me, you know? And, and I feel like they're like, they want me to be more successful. And it's like, well, I don't want to be more successful. I'm perfectly happy. Like being, where I'm at, you know, it's like, and it's all about being happy. I think you're doing just fine, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Yeah, so I think that uh, it's really weird, man, what other people expect out of us. I really feel like when people say that, they're telling you that they wish that they did something like that. Yeah, or they ha- if they had the, um, if they were sitting where I'm sitting or in my shoes, that they would use that opportunity to do more with it. And it's just like, what if you're already doing what you want with it? Exactly. It's like, well, I'm already there, you know, and it's just like, you have to be okay with that because it's not really your decision to, or, you know, speaking hypothetically, their, their decision to make. So, or they think they want more. Yeah. And it's also about like making, like, I think I've never had an actual diagnosis, but I think like I'm super ADD or at least I used to be like way worse. And I have to make things in my life kind of digestible. Otherwise, I won't be able to to do I won't be able to keep up, you know. So if I if I as long as I kind of like meter my life and 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 keep it like pace to where I can digest it and do anything that I actually set out to do, I do it to the best of my ability. And like I I try my best and I don't feel like it's killing me, then I feel like I'm doing the right thing for myself because like. I don't like living on adrenaline. Like I don't, I don't, it it makes me really, really uncomfortable and it adds to my anxiety. And I also have like really shallow breathing and I always have to like remind myself to, to even breathe because I'm just like, there are certain moments where I'm just like, all right, I'm starting to feel like that anxiety and it's coming back and you can, you can have health problems because of that. And I, and and I've suffered things because I just don't, I'm too high strung. So learning how to pace myself is also important. So it's almost like you have this standard for what your contribution should be in the world. And as long as you're meeting whatever that standard is that you set for yourself, you're good. And if you don't, then you start going to war with yourself. Precisely. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think that's like kind of like that's the thing that I've been fighting against for for a really long time. And is that a bad thing, though? to have high standards and then try to meet them? Yes. Yeah, because you're constantly chasing something that may not exist or you may not be capable of or What's the alternative? Yeah, I think that I think the trade-off is that it's like at least I know I tried. I always like I'm always asking my, myself this question like did I try hard enough? Is the stuff that I'm contributing is it like is it of the quality that I think it is or am I like convincing myself that it is just because I think I tried hard. So it's just this constant like ebb and flow of like, or this internal dialogue, I should say, of like, you know, trying trying to do this the or keep my frame of mind in this area and making sure that I'm managing my anxiety. So. So are there ever times where you can check off the boxes and be like, yes, the, what I just did fits the criteria. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, and when it happens, it's hugely rewarding. How do you know? How do you know when it happens? Well, I'd say if, if we're going to get into specifics with that, like definitely, like when it comes to recording or writing and recording periphery stuff with the guys, because I'd say that I probably write the most, but the but most of my output doesn't get used because it's just like 
I'm not, like I said, I don't fancy myself a musician. So I have to, I feel like I have to push myself a little bit harder to kind of write stuff at the quality that the other guys kind of do more innately. And then when I do, when I succeed, I know it. Like you can, I just, there, there's kind of, there's kind of like a, a sense that you can just, okay, yeah, this fits, this fits in this song, this like, I'm understanding what this song is about. I'm understanding what the other guys are kind of kind of going for. Cause like trying to interpret that because we're all producers in our own, right? We all have our own like separate vision and trying to get like unified with that is, is challenging. I think it's challenging for, for everyone. But for me, I feel like it's, it's a bit harder. And, uh, when I figure that out, when I, or when I succeed at that, it's, it's, it's enormously rewarding. And I think that's kind of, that's the thing I focus on the most. Have you ever considered the fact that you're just about every musician that's done well feels like they don't know what they're doing? Not that it changes anything for the way your head works, but are you aware of that? I can relate to that because I hear that often. And it's, it's nice to know that at least in our scene, that that seems to be kind of a common thread. And it's kind of what I love about this scene and, and, and kind of what I love about metal is that, you know, I guess the self-deprecation gets a little old. I mean, I do it all the time and people are probably sick of it right by now, but um, at least there's kind of that sense of like, yeah, it's, 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 it's good and, and, you know, but I can do better. And I like that because it's constantly pushing all of us forward and and a lot of people don't have big heads because they they know that cuz you know metal even though metal is getting bigger it is it is still like the underdog and if we're going to like look at all the genres of music and i think that a lot of people at least that i know have a reasonable heads on their shoulder and they keep their expectations where they should be and um and you know while i I'd say that it's kind of like a, I don't know the right word for it. It's not a psychosis, but I guess it's an anxiety of like that, that imposter syndrome that we're talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of happy that like other people experience that too. So I don't feel so alone about it. Uh, Like I said, I don't think that anybody except for the psychopaths don't experience that (laughs) because I mean, we all know the psychopaths or the sociopaths in the scene, but there's not that many of them. Uh, but they stand out. We've all come across them. They're wired that way. But it's it's rare, though. It's rare. It's not very common. It's rare. And then um, you guys probably know about this uh, this cognitive bias uh, called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I feel like that has kind of been the the overarching theme of the past couple of years, just with everything like media and politics and, and music and stuff. And you can kind of see it when you see these like legendary musicians on YouTube and they're just blowing it like totally just like, yeah, they probably shouldn't be playing this because they sound terrible. But like, I wonder how much of that is like Dunning-Kruger effect where they're constantly being told that they're great by the people that are around them and they just they get massaged into that way of thinking. And then there's really no going back. Like they just like, well, this entire time, everyone, everyone's been telling me that I've been doing great. I think it's partially that, but then I also think, and I'm not going to, I can't name names here, (laughs) but there's a, there's a famous guitar series on YouTube that had been around for a long time, run by some uh, big guitar uh, publication where guitar players would play something super impressive. And uh, so many people that we know who are amazing would have clips of themselves playing stuff that sounded like complete and utter dog shit. (laughs) And since I know these people, and I know you know them too, and we've sat in backstage rooms with them and we know just how good they are, something didn't make sense about these videos coming out versus what I know about these players. Like, And then I got involved in one of those. And we did like five takes, told them exactly which ones not to use, and guess which ones they used. <laughs> and so um, I got the impression that they were doing that shit on purpose. Mm. They were doing that shit on purpose, and it could be number one because the person behind it was pissed. There's an older dude who was never in a big band who knows a ton about guitar. 
and uh, like when I was there, I could feel his anger and his spite, <laughs> his spite towards rock stars. Not that we were rock stars, but like a lot of rock stars did come through there. You could feel his spite towards well-known musicians. So I think that it's partially that, and then also partially it will be more viral if uh, if this dude that is so fucking respected gets shown fucking up. Because, dude, there's no way. There's so many great... You probably know exactly what I'm talking about. There's... And if you don't, I'll tell you afterwards. But uh, <laughs> I think I have an idea. Yeah, I'm sure you know. There's so many great players on there who are just eating shit that uh, after experiencing it, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but uh, I came to the conclusion that it was intentional. Could be. I mean, it's like, I feel like... I feel like live music is one of those things that's really hard to get right, especially in the metal world, because we're so conditioned to hear like this pristine production and like everything is like just quantized and right where it should be. And there's this kind of expectation that we're supposed to be able to replicate that live. I'm not denying that that it should be that way. You know, I, tr I try my hardest to, to play like the recording, but it will never be like that, at least for me. I know I know maybe like, you know, a handful of dudes that can do it like, you know, and you guys are, are I put in that list. You guys kill it. God, I remember the first time that uh, I used an Axe Effects on stage with in-ears. Nobody else in the band did it, but I felt like I had to uh, be the tip of the spear. And but also it happened to be the final tour. So. I guess the tip of the spear for nothing. But uh, anyways, like did an entire tour where I was the only dude with that setup. And it was so fucking weird <laughs> because you'd walk over to my side of the stage and it'd be silent. And then walk over to the other side of the stage and it'd be like a fucking barrage. And, uh, and it threw everybody off. It, it was just so weird. After getting used to having like two to four cabinets per person, to suddenly having one side of the stage just be silent it's kind of disconcerting yeah and and when you're going when you're going direct like that the the first time that i played direct i'm like i hate this like i'm a terrible guitar player i can hear everything and i don't like it i want to hear i i want to you know i want people to lie to me and kiss i want to be enveloped <laughs> with this vibration yeah like i i, I you know i couldn't handle the fact that like wow this it sounds terrible i need to practice um but it made it forces you to get better and you know because you're not you're getting an accurate or at least a yeah, more it keeps accurate, you honest yeah you're getting a more re accurate representation of what you're you're outputting and you're not getting because like when you go to a venue like every there's so many frequencies that are just shitting in your ears and it's just like it's it's just like opening their butt and shit <laughs> yeah right in. yeah it's just it's you know it's not a it's not always a pleasurable experience but you know, once you learn to dial in that direct sound, it does get better. You do you do get rid of a lot of that noise. And there's there's this kind of like there's this funny noise battle that happens at Soundcheck with between the three guitar players and uh and our sound guy Alex and and our other sound guy Ronnie. It's just like there's a whole section of Soundcheck where we have to like adjust our cab levels cuz they keep telling us to turn down and we keep turning them back up. And it's just like, it's just, it's, it's the eternal conflict. So you've mentioned many times that you don't consider yourself a good musician, yet you're in a band that requires good musicianship and you play with really good musicians. So, uh, dude, I, I think it's like the musician version of body dysmorphia. Yeah. Like, yeah. I yeah. have, I have an eating disorder, except I have a guitar disorder. Yeah. Uh, unaware of your own level, uh, which I think is a, kind of a good thing with musicians because it uh that's one of the reasons that they keep on trying to get better is they don't think they're good enough obviously if they thought they were good enough they would stop trying to get better and then they would get worse because since it's a perishable skill you have to keep trying to get there's no there's no maintaining you're either getting better or you're getting worse it's an endless journey like they'll never you'll never reach your de destination you just have to enjoy the traveling yeah exactly but that said what do you do to be able to keep up like what is a day in the life of jake involved guitar wise or at least maybe not every single day but like overall what are the kinds of things that you do to be able to keep up 
Yeah, this is this is like really important for me. And, you know, just to preface this, like, I know that I'm a competent musician. I just don't like to say that I'm a good musician because if I was under pressure, I'd probably just blow it. You know? But you're under pressure all the time. Yes and no. So what I do to like get ready for like a, a tour or some sort of performance or, or whatever is, and, and this might drive the guys nuts. I'm not sure. They haven't said anything. I'll ask two months before we start the tour, like, okay, what are we playing? What do, what do you guys want to play? And they're like, it's two months from now. Can we talk about this later? And I'm like, nah, I kind of want to know now. And the reason is, is because I have this dry erase board in my kitchen and I'll write down two songs on every day of the week up until that tour. And those are the two songs that I just play over and over again all day. And I do these little like 20, 25 minute sessions of playing, you know, throughout the day, every hour, just like, and, and I, I obsessively practice and it kind of gets me to a point where it's all muscle memory and I'm not thinking about it anymore, but it takes so much preparation to get there that that's really the only way for me to kind of like hang with these guys. Cause like, you know, if you're ever around Mark or Misha and they're like, Oh yeah, what's that riff from that song? They'll just be able to play it. Like, and it could be like 11 years old and they'll be able to figure it out. And I'm not like that. Like once it's gone, it's gone. Like I have to relearn it. I have this whole uh, directory on my computer that has videos for every riff and every song. So when we're playing stuff, or when we're divvying up parts for for tours, I'll be like, oh, can you play that again? I'm going to film you playing that. So I have videos of everything so I can reference those when it comes time to to playing the stuff live. So that way I'm not like playing my interpretation of it because my ear is not that great. Um, and I can see exactly what they're doing and making sure that the fingering is correct and that the right hand rhythm is, is correct and the palm, just everything. Like I, I just obsess over it. And I think that's really the main reason why I've been able to like hang with these guys because they are all phenomenal musicians. And, um, you know, it's kind of it's the thing that's that's driven me. And that's like kind of like made me want to be in this band is like if I keep hanging around these guys and like emulating what the what they're doing, I'll do just fine. <laughs> so. Hard, hard work. And I don't mean to say that you've got no talent or anything like that, but this is like prime example of hard work over talent like obviously you've got talent but like you realize what your shortcomings are and you figured out how to how to overcome them with the right kind of hard work yeah it's time put into it you know that's how i operate and i've noticed that things have gotten easier to learn and easier to conceptualize because i've spent so much time obsessing over it and it's a healthy obsession it's not like I'm sitting there freaking out. I have it in my head that I'm like, all right, well, you know, I have two months. If I can't get this in two months, I have no business doing this for a living. So that's kind of my attitude about it. Eventually, tour rolls are along and I'm I'm feeling real good about it. And yeah, so that's how I do it. Most of these situations are just things that happen. So how we decide to interpret them or react to them is what is what defines them as good or bad. And it's completely up to us. Not that breaking a bone ever feels pleasurable or anything, but the totality of the experience is defined by what you do in light of it. Yeah. And so it could be either a colossal clusterfuck or it could be something that uh, that propels you to to do things that were far beyond what you were doing before that, in which case it's a good thing. Yeah, it's character defining. That could easily have it had it been a different set of circumstances. It could have even been me. Doesn't you know? I'm not special or anything. It's uh, you know, if that happened to me at the wrong time or it happened to somebody else at the wrong time, that could have sent them into a depression. They could have made bad decisions out of that depression. Like it's like it's all very situational, and you know, there's a lot of luck there. And I was uh, lucky enough to kind of take that situation and kind of shape it into something that was healthy and not because like, you know, I have I've battled depression, you know, I, I'm not I'm, I'm very prone to it and um, it didn't get me there. And I'm very thankful for that. What do you do to battle it? I'm just wondering, because so many people listening have dealt with it, including me and Brown. Yeah, yeah. It's I, you know, it, it's it's a very like consistent 
ailment amongst like people who are uh, creatives. You know, it's just it, it seems like we're very um, susceptible to it. That or anxiety or both. Yeah. I have two things that really, really help. I have a personal mantra where I'm like, you know, it's it doesn't really help in the it just helps keep me focused. And really, the personal mantra is like, it's only time. It's only time and things will get better. I just keep saying that to myself over and over and over again. I try to say it's the optimist side of me coming out. And then the thing that actually like physically helps is uh, just like doing every drug in the book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's uh, going and hiking, being out in nature, getting lots of sun and, and getting that vitamin D cranking. Vitamin D and exercise, man. The best antidepressants. Yeah, staying enclosed in in the in in four walls just it'll destroy me, and it has. And I realize that you know I need to buy a pair of hiking boots, and I need to get my ass up in the mountains and and look at some trees, and um, you know make some hiking friends, and uh, you know and and I did that, and I consistently do that still, and I find that I don't get as depressed anymore because I know that I have that to look forward to. I recently just did a, I completed a, a, a three week trip in which I, um, I road tripped with my girlfriend to Yellowstone and, uh, the Grand Tetons. And we just hiked for three weeks and, you know, we went, you know, we saw some of the craziest stuff and I came back from that just feeling like a brand new person. And, you know, it, it also like, Kind of, even though like I knew it was going on and we had to deal with it some somewhat being out there, it kind of paused this pandemic for me because we were just out in the middle of nowhere and there were no other people around except when we were in like the more dense parts of these parks. But for most of our trip, there were no people. So I just felt like I was just kind of like in nature and none of this other crazy shit was going on. That might sound selfish, I, I but you know, I don't intend it to be. It's just... Dude, ev everyone needs to do what they can do to uh, keep their wits and their sanity. Yeah, and it really helped. Like, it just, you know, it, if, if, if you haven't been out that way and you enjoy being outside, that's, I think that's like a must. If you come to America ever, you got to see that because you, you won't believe your eyes. It's some of the most beautiful scenery I've ever seen in my life. And that's really like... That's really the key for me is just to stay outside and exercise vitamin D. And yeah, that's that's the thing that helps the most. I will say, though, it's appreciated in the American uh, me medical community and uh, people who deal with depression. Uh, it's like an, it's a very known thing that you should be taking 5000 IU of it. If you suffer from depression, uh, that's just like common knowledge that you should be either taking it or getting outside for 30 minutes a day at least like that's common common knowledge if they don't know that in england they should yeah those clouds are getting in the way <laughs> get those vitamin d capsules or drops or chewables and get those 5000 iu yeah yeah highly recommend plus it protects from corona but yeah i've been taking vitamin d for mental reasons for like years now and uh i mean you can you can confirm that uh, my depression has gotten way, way, way better. But it's not just vitamin D. It's vitamin D plus exercise, plus sunlight, plus improved diet, plus improved sleep, you know, plus weight loss. It's all of it. And, and, and improved social interactions, too. I, 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 we all, I think a lot of people have this tendency to kind of get withdrawn. And I do that naturally, even when I'm not depressed. I just like, hey, I want to I be alone. And, uh, when, when I do get into a depression, I have to be, I have to force myself to be like, go, go see your friends, go take your mom out to dinner, like, you know, walk the dog at the dog park and go, you know, see the other people who walk their dogs, you know, like I, I have to force myself to do that stuff. Otherwise I start to get like introverted and weird and stuff. I, I talk to myself a lot. He, he's a big reason why I don't fall into depression anymore, too, because, like, he's a very good influence on me, like, with the whole, like, exercising and uh, kind of um, just eating healthier. Right now, um, we're doing a, uh, a sober year because our thing, because we live far from each other. He lives in Brooklyn and I live in upstate New York. And our thing has always been, like, 
So no meth? <laughs> no meth. Yeah, no meth for a year. <laughs> Good job. Just DMT and cocaine. No. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, you know. I'm being sober here. We'll get like a six pack or a bottle of wine each and we'll go on, you know, PlayStation and just like play UFC against each other for hours or just like I'll watch him stream like a game and we'll just drink and talk while one of us plays and stuff like that. And we would do that every night. And it got to the point where we're like, maybe we should take a break from this because like we're going to accidentally become alcoholics. And, you know, there probably was a time when I was actually by definition an alcoholic and didn't intend that was not my intention. I don't think people intend to become alcoholics, but like I just wasn't really aware of it. You know, it was just kind of like this thing that we did. So now, thanks to him, he's like, what if we take a year off from alcohol? Let's just try see if we can do it. And we've been doing it like since July. So it's been working and you know i really owe a lot to him putting me on the path of like healthier living and you know we share our workout plans with each other yeah it's just it's just a really it, our friendship is like is based a lot around like this kind of mutual respect for each other and like i respect the way that like he's been able to kind of live his life in this like very structured routine that's healthy but that's also fun and you know it's just it's just a good guy to have have in my life because you know I, I i would probably do more destructive things if i didn't have him as a friend so that reminded me of this band i shared a bus with once the singer was one of those intense alcoholic drug user types intense and uh, he was telling me how this was a sober tour and uh so no no drugs or alcohol allowed on the bus it's like fine this guy's an elder statesman we're going to respect it. They're the headliners. Fine. What that meant was that he would only drink a case of wine a day. <laughs> it's like, that, that's him not drinking is a case of wine a day. A fucking case. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I commend I commend his self-imposed limits, but I don't know if that's going <laughs> to get the desired effect. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the thing. It, it reminds me of that that uh, that gag from Half Baked, where like Snoop Dogg kind of like floats out of like the ether, and you know he like kind of like bums the smoke, and he's like, "It's too bad, I just quit yesterday." <laughs> <laughs> it's like the same same idea. It's exactly the same idea. So we've got a few questions from our listeners for you that uh, figure we should ask you. So I will begin. This one's from Jordan Durant, which is, Hey, Jake, hope you're doing well. I was wondering how different your process is when it comes to writing for your solo electronic project as opposed to writing for periphery. Like, do you use a different DAW? Do you still write riffs, etc.? It's pretty different. I'd say the, the, the most obvious different difference is I don't have the guys to kind of tell me if stuff sucks or not. So I have, I'm like on my own to like... And unless I send somebody an idea, but like, I don't really do that anymore just because I'm not, it takes me a long time to kind of compose a song from start to finish. And if I let anybody hear anything, it has to be in some sort of finished capacity. But um, I'll start out a lot of my ideas on the guitar first, because I just understand note relationships on the neck of the guitar than I do on a piano roll. I do have um, several keyboards in my house and I can kind of like noodle my way around, but I can't come up with the same density of phrases that I would on a guitar. I can't like write the mo most complex stuff on the piano. So I always stick with the guitar first to kind of conceptualize. Then I'll record it. And then what I'll do is I'll start programming things over the guitar parts and I'll, I'll use different synths for that. And then what, what ends up happening is that I'll have these like long phrases of synth lines that are mirroring the guitar parts. And then I'll chop up those waveforms and rearrange them and pan them and send them through different like EQs, um, you know, to, to kind of get a filtered effect. And um, I kind of piece together these pieces of synth and guitar parts. And then I'll, I'll put a rudimentary drum beat over underneath it to kind of give myself some framework to work within. And then I, I just piece together sections that are complementary to each other through trial and error. So it, if I knew what I was doing better, I, I'd probably, it would take me a lot less time to write a whole song, but that's generally my approach. I start with the guitar, then I overlay synths, then I chop and edit the synths 
to kind of create more interesting uh, varieties of sections or layers, and I, all while trying to stay within the framework of the the drum beat that I made. And then at the very end, I start playing with different drum beats because you know I can change I can change the drum beats and the accents last, and sometimes that creates interesting results. So that's kind of been my method. That's the method I'm using right now to write my the album I'm writing right now. Thanks for the question, Jordan. All right, question here from Kiko Hernandez. Why a Floyd on your signature guitar, man? It's such a good guitar, but it hurts every time I change the <laughs> strings. Also, I want to be you. Oh, wow. Well, I appreciate that. That's, very, that's a very flattering thing to hear. Um, as far as the Floyd thing goes, that's more of like a quirk of something I, I liked back in the day. I, I always love the feel of that, that Ibanez Low Pro trim. It just always felt like real flat on the palm. And I always just loved the feel of those really like beefy fine tuners that came with it. And uh, I was always like a stickler about my tuning, especially when you're in a band with three guitars. I always felt like I had to, you know, check my tuning after every song. I mean, you should do that anyways, but sometimes you can't. And so I would even like make tuning changes or just slight adjustments during the song. If I, if I was hearing like things that are like not resonating with the other guitar players, I tried to compensate for it. But then like later on, I realized that it really wasn't doing anything and it was just kind of complicating things. Um, so you'll notice on like my newer customs and the guitars that will be coming out. Actually, I already have a guitar with a fixed bridge out called the JBM 10 FX. Um, and, uh, that's, that's the direction I'm moving in. So, and all my Floyds are pretty much blocked except for like a couple of them. So if you were to pick up any one of my guitars, it would essentially act as a fixed bridge with some fine tuners. What's that? The, the Ibanez, I think it's called a, uh, edge three. I forget the H string has, has it. But now I'm moving over to fixed bridges exclusively. So, um, just as a little, uh, insider tip that if you uh if you want one of those quirky guitars with the floyd roses get them now because they will never come back especially when the new ones come out so thank uh, you for the tip <laughs> yes buy my book <laughs> buy my product <laughs> yeah but yeah that's that's why i did that yeah it's just kind of like an old old taste sort of thing all right so let's see here question from nick bogdanovich jake Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Nick. Yeah, exactly. Jake, I love your style. Sometimes it seems very much like, quote unquote, saying what you need to say, but often short, tasty riff morsels. Is this a particular style you picked up, like for your solos and leads, or something you developed based on your own taste in music? I'd love to hear about how you get on with attacking your riff machines. Um... I, I, the best way that I can describe how, um, and this is going to sound like super pretentious, so I'm going to try not to, uh, try not to make it sound, well, I'll just preface it saying that it's going to be super pretentious, but it's like, imagine like you have this like hunk of wood and it's just a hunk of wood and then you start hacking away at it until something starts to take shape. And that's exactly how I approach my riff writing. I'll take like a really remedial riff, some some little phrase, some like sequence of notes, and I'll start like adding and subtracting to it and changing the rhythm and just like kind of like just finding my way through the dark to like something that sounds like until I'm happy with it. And then what'll end up happening is I'll take this kind of like unfinished sculpture and I'll be like, hey, Misha, hey, Mark, what do you think of this? And if they're inspired by it, they'll give me their feedback and then I can take that feedback and then I go and I start like, I continue to, to hack at it some more until like the final product takes shape if they want a specific example so it's like carving yeah it's exactly like carving it's just kind of like you know i don't know what it's gonna be but i'm gonna come up with something uh eventually um and uh it might look like a uh you know a beautiful statue or it might look like uh you know an old wooden dick who knows um <laughs> and either one of them has merit yeah yeah they're both useful in their own right i guess yeah, I mean, a good example of something like this is uh, in, one, in our song called 
garden in the bones. There's this middle bridge section where it's kind of like this arpeggiated, slightly overdriven thing that I played on a Telecaster. And um, I wrote most of that how I wrote it was exactly how it appeared on the record. In fact, the 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 clean section before the drums kick back in, that's from the demo. Um, we didn't re-record it because it had like this vibe to it, this kind of like just slightly imperfect vibe. And um, there's one little uh, section in there that like Misha was like, all of that's good. Just change this one note to this note and play this after it. And then I think like this is this is great. And um, and that's kind of like that's not only an example of like how you know, I chipped away at something until I came up with something that I liked, but I brought it to the guys to, to get some sort of collaboration on it. And they helped me with that little part of it. And it, you know, it, it became something that I'm really proud of. So that's like, I'd say that's a very pure example of, uh, of how I would do something or write a riff for, for a song. I see one more that we can finish out on from Lawrence Truesdale Smith. Hey, Jake, could you talk a bit about how you guys handle communication on key decisions for the band in terms of both musical and financial decisions? This is where emotion tends to get involved in my own band. You know, something we really need to work on to have a chance of thriving in the long term. So the fact that you're asking this question shows me that you are I, I, you're at least on the right path because you've heard the old cliche saying that communication is key. Well, it is true. It is very, very true. And it's been a very, very long, difficult road for for periphery in terms of, you know, how we communicate with each other, but also the just this innate respect that we have for each other's opinions and space and contributions to the band, whether it's like administrative or musical or whatever. I think the first piece of that puzzle was to have the personnel that all believed in the, the the greatness of the whole. So everybody has it in their head that like, okay, I value my own opinion, but I also I value the the the, the state of the band and the, the the health the health of the band is is greater than just my my one opinion. Like a relationship. Yeah, exactly. You want to think about the whole and I'd say that making sure that everybody in the group values that. And there's kind of an unspoken component to that. It's not something that you can just like say that it has to be that way. And then everybody gets on board. It's like, you have to consciously come to that conclusion yourself. And I think that's why we work is because everybody just knows that like, all right, periphery is the, the probably the biggest reason we can do all this other stuff whether it's the entrepreneurial stuff or it's the gear stuff or it's the, you know, the side hustles, the various side hustles we all have going on and keeping that as kind of like this uh, celestial object that everything else orbits around is probably the most important aspect of that. That really comes from the love of the music and the fact that we all work together as best friends, but also as co-collaborators. So there kind of has to be this interplay between like we all respect the music, which means that we all respect the band and we respect that over our own desires most of the time. Obviously, sometimes you have to fight for something you really believe in and sometimes that happens. But when that does happen, it's kind of like I think like the term we use is like it's like this is my ask. We can usually do anything, you know, any other way, but please, please, can we do it this way? And if people like are flexible enough, then, you know, we can, we can do that. So it's just a matter of uh, respecting the band and the business as a whole. And we have had to learn to communicate to each other. Like, John, you probably have been present for some of our band arguments and, and kind of like how we've learned or at least how we used to interact with each other in a previous era of the band and like it's hard to like remember that that was a thing because like now we never really argue like if we argue it's because like it's four in the morning and we're tired and like you know it lasts for a minute and then you know we buy each other coffees or something like that but it's it's been a long road and it's been like you know constant just like 
trying to realize that the other guy isn't like trying to be mean or like trying is is acting in bad faith. It's just a matter of like we're just in a, in certain moods and we can get past this. And also, if there is an issue, we try not to do that thing that a lot of people think is the right thing to do, which is to wait for that perfect time. Sure, there are better times to speak about something important than there are others. Like, you don't want to, like, bring up, like, a, a huge ban issue when you're about to go through customs. Unless it's who brought the meth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're taking the rap for this, man. I, I don't want anything to do with this. Letting things fester will kill a band. Resentment will kill a band, just like it will kill a relationship between two people. Taking steps to reduce that amount of resentment and to show your peers that you care about them is super important. Because if you don't take that time to say like, hey man, I care about you and I know we're fighting or I know we have a disagreement, but I don't want I don't want the the resentment to build up between us. And you know, obviously it's not always said with that amount of directness, but that's what's implied. And I think that's the reason that we've been able to not kill each other and not break up and, and, you know, stay together and get healthier as a band because we, we respect each other that much. And, uh, I'd say that if it's becoming a persistent problem in your own group, I'm not saying to fire people who are troublesome, but it, it may be a personnel issue and, uh, it's something to look at. Jake, thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure finally getting to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, likewise. I, I, I was looking forward to it um, since you guys asked me. I like that you guys have such a high quality podcast because everybody wants to have a podcast. It's like the new Let's Start a Band. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, you just kind of throw and go, but you guys like do it right. You guys, you know, it's it's high quality and it. you guys ask good questions and, and it's just, it's really fun to talk to you guys. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I mean, helps that you're a good guest. <laughs> thank you. Thank <laughs> you.